The analogy I use when I'm hiring a general manager is use a sort analogy. Are they someone who wants the ball? You know, there's five seconds left to the game. It's tied. Are they someone who's going to call for the ball? Or are they someone who wants to pass the ball? And someone who's going to be a GM or in that kind of a role has to be someone who wants the ball, right? Like they thrive under that pressure. They love that moment of like, okay, I can do this. That said, where you start the question around decision-making, you know, I think being a C-level executive requires a lot of humility, knowing your limits, knowing that you may not be the smartest person in the room and knowing how to delegate. And so one thing we try really hard at Mirrorwalt to do is push decision-making down through the work, right? So like, I don't have to make every single decision out there. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast. Here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from Magana Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. The Rev of Revenue Intelligence, the boss with the sauce in the hoss, not so sassy, even though he is Sasserman. It's Danny Wasserman, your host of Reveal the Revenue Intelligence Podcast in the Gong Studios today with a really honestly kick-ass episode. And I don't say that lightly. All of our episodes are kick-ass, but this guy's perspective is fascinating. We've got Kevin Yuan, the chief business officer and GM of NerdWallet Next. Yes, obviously the name implies in that second moniker that he's over at NerdWallet, that awesome kick-ass website that tells you everything you need to know about financial acumen and well-being. Well, he kicks off the episode by discussing after an illustrious career in management consulting, he's over at Visa. Oh, what could be better? Serving for that marquee brand. And someone tells him, he's like, Kevin, why would you ever leave Visa to come to NerdWallet? You seem so comfortable. And it's that operative term, comfortable, that signaled to Kevin he might be getting complacent, which compelled him to leave and join NerdWallet, having never really spent too much time in startups. And it just echoes throughout the whole episode, this pursuit of balancing ambition, not so much that it becomes reckless greed or unsustainable change or disruption, but avoiding even the slightest possibility that you would get dangerously comfortable in your status quo. Along the way, Kevin talks about what is it that he looks for internally as well as externally in the people on his team and how he is pitched as the chief business officer of NerdWallet and the operative word he uses, authenticity. <clears throat> Gives me all the warm and fuzzies. So tune in to this week's episode, hear all about what it takes to over a decade at NerdWallet, rising from the ranks to achieve that apex predator status of being the chief business officer and GM of NerdWallet. Next, said too much, over to you, Kevin. DJ, spin that. Kevin, welcome to Reveal. Thanks, Kevin. It's awesome to be here. Oh, man. It's just with a pedigree like that, Kevin, there's so many places that I want to start. But obviously, in a decade's worth of experience and having a Hollywood finish like an IPO, I really would love to hear from you. Give us kind of the backstory. Where did you start? Now, obviously, you're at the apex of the food chain within the organization. But how, over the last almost 10 years, how did you find yourself doing both the work of a C-suite executive as well as handling all affairs pertaining to NerdWallet Next? And oh, by the way, yeah, corporate strategy and corporate dev fall onto you. That just seems like an incredibly interesting journey. Let's start there. Yeah. I joined NerdWallet almost a decade ago, I think exactly nine years ago in a few months. And it's funny that I used to tell a story about how I got hooked to join NerdWallet. And uh, I was working at Visa. I got an email from a recruiter about NerdWallet. 
I wasn't interested, but thought the name was interesting. It was worried as a digital wallet that I had to be aware of for my yeah. job at Visa. Took a look, found out, actually knew someone at the company who was my neighbor. And then through the recruiting process, the thing that really hooked me was the recruiter at the time, during one of those like, you know, coffee chats, basically said to me, I don't know why you would leave Visa. You seem really comfortable there. And with that one word, I knew I had to leave Visa. I was going to be at NerdWallet. And I just couldn't imagine anyone characterizing my career as being comfortable. And I would say the past nine years at NerdWallet has been a lot of uncomfortable moments, but also a lot of learning, which was fantastic. So, you know, when I first joined NerdWallet, I joined to run credit cards, uh-huh. which at the time was, I don't know, I think maybe like 96 or 98% of the company's total revenue. We were still very much a startup, but we'd gotten to about 80 people. So about one-tenth the size we are now. But the one thing we had realized at that point was that we figured out what our, what we call like our unfair advantage or durable advantage mm-hmm. was, which is in credit cards, we figured out that by producing trustworthy recommendations for consumers, that they would start coming to us. And so we started having this really enormous top of funnel traffic that was coming to us for free because people valued the type of recommendations we're giving. And so we took that and we're like, well, can we scale that to do other things? And so, you know, I joined in 2014. In 2015, I think we kicked off like 12 additional verticals. So think like clone credit cards, let's do that for mortgages, for personal loans, for insurance, you know, it did a lot, they just kept going and going. And we basically replicated that then. And that was one of the really big milestones of growth for us in recognizing that was a key advantage. The other thing, which is really interesting, I think which is less well-known is naturally when you start doing all those things, the feedback you start hearing is, well, should we just focus? Mm -hmm. And so people kept asking, well, why don't you just double down on credit cards and capture that market space? And we always resisted the urge to do that. I don't know if it's because we're just too ambitious or Mm -hmm. too foolish to know that you shouldn't do so many things. But in retrospect, that became one of our secret powers too, which is the ability to do many things at once and find ways to do that so they wouldn't impact each other. So before we talk about just the full breadth of offerings that you manage and what NerdWallet provides in an otherwise dizzying ecosystem of financial acumen that we're increasingly expected to know as consumers, will you touch on something that I find is worth explicating a little further? This idea of being comfortable. The recruiter at NerdWallet says, you seem so comfortable at Visa. And the idea of leisure, comfort, familiarity, security, any of those words, societally we would think, would ring true to ease and bliss and stability. Why introduce instability? Why run towards discomfort in lieu of something that sounded like you had built quite successfully at also a marquee brand such as Visa? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying on the comfort, I think, you know, it's interesting the way you tie that together. You know, our goal at NerdWallet is to make people more comfortable financially. Yeah. It doesn't mean we're going to, like some people have like really hard problems to solve. But the idea is like, how do we help alleviate from that mental pressure that you feel? So that's one of our goals. It's interesting, on a personal level, you know, the comfort thing for me is just not being complacent and stagnating, right? Like comfort for me kind of equates to that. And it's interesting because it does apply a bit to how we think about management and nerd wallet. You know, there's one of the struggles we've had over the last nine or 10 years is as a growing company, there's a desire to get to a steady state. 
Mm-hmm. And you hear a lot from the employees like, oh, we, we're just getting used to this new org structure. We're just getting used to this new methodology of shipping. And now you're changing things again. Or we just started out alignment on this strategy. And I always felt that pull. And my conclusion now after nine or 10 years is that it's actually good to be in a constant state of being uncomfortable because it forces you to constantly evolve and push yourself and think differently. And I think that's one of the fantastic things about our CEOs that, you know, every week he comes to me, he's like, hey, I know we just talked about this and we came to a conclusion, but what if we, like, here's some new information, should we think about it differently? And as a result, I think as a company, we're just never comfortable or complacent. And so we're just constantly evolving and pushing to see where the next opportunity is. Does that feel in any way, given your mission to introduce comfort and ease for your customers in the disorienting nature of sort of finance and personal well-being financially? Does that feel paradoxical where you yourselves existentially want to maintain a healthy state of flux? Whereas I think as a consumer, I want to go to NerdWallet. I want to understand the decision I should make once, make that and be comfortable and secure in knowing that I made that right decision. I don't have to double. I don't have to revisit or question, was that the right call? Yeah, I don't know. I think for me, there's like compartments, right, of comfort. You know, one interesting tidbit about myself, if you looked at my wardrobe, there's no variance. I have five pairs of jeans that are the same. All my shirts are the same, like same color. It drives my wife crazy. So for me, like there are aspects of my life that I think I try to find comfort or stability in. Okay. And then other aspects is just like constant turmoil. And I think it's like focusing where you want that turmoil to drive positive evolution versus it being kind of a negative aspect. Talk to us about the striking of the right balance of change and volatility in spirit of, again, your CEO wanting to perpetually innovate and stay on the cutting edge. You and your CEO clearly both indexed towards that end of the spectrum. And not everyone, I suspect, has that appetite, let alone the endurance to withstand that amount of change that inherently we gravitate as lazy people. I mean, I don't say that pejoratively, but We are looking for modes or ways or pockets of efficiency. How do you not over-rotate to a state where people are perpetually fatigued and resentful of all the change, even though it is couched under the auspices of, ah, but this is in service of NerdWallet's growth and this is in service of the company, so we should all band around it when, in fact, people have their limits. So what is that balancing act that you figured out during your years in management? Yeah, a couple of thoughts there. One is... If you have a strong hypothesis, you should see it through, but know what you're looking for as a signal of, okay, should we double down here or should we abandon? So I don't think driving, like relitigating decisions just because you feel like it is a good practice. Okay. You, know, you should only do it if there's new information. That said, if there is new information, which I think in our current environment, there always is, yeah. you know, changing dynamic environment. And so you have to constantly evaluate, like, how is the ground shifting beneath you? And so as a result, you know, I think for us, it's getting people comfortable with that, but getting comfortable with the fact it's like rooted in logic and not it being capricious just because we felt today like, oh, we wanted to wear a red shirt instead of a blue shirt. I also think you have to be really good about communication and alignment with the team. And that's something that in some ways we've struggled with and only recently have gotten really good at, which is finding the right ways and forms to communicate from the top down what we're trying to do. And so that's something that 
it's critically important because then people understand why there's change and then they can make a decision for themselves whether they want to stay on the bus or they want to get off. As we think about who within an organization typically occupies that decision-making authority, as a C-suite executive, I have to think a lot of that authority rests on your shoulders. So this next question has a lot to do with demystifying for our listeners who are largely not made up of peers of yours in the C-suite, but people who aspire to ultimately get there. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what is that level of pressure, that workload? And really, honestly, Kevin, the question I want to ask is, what is the ability for you with all of the ways in which you're being ripped in a thousand directions internally and externally from constituents inside NerdWallet to vendors outside to the pressures of your board and shareholders? The cognitive load is just, it's not even dizzying. It's unfathomable for the rest of us mere mortals. What are the techniques and the tools you're using to cope with managing what has to just be more work than any one human being could do? Because I think we see the signs of, I mean, you just examine Elon Musk when things are going horribly wrong at Twitter. And oh, by the way, he's juggling things with all of his other ventures. And he's just wearing the stress physically. Whereas I'm looking at you and you seem very subdued, very at ease, incredibly composed under these amounts of stress. How do you juggle it? Yeah. I think for some people, the stress can be a positive motivator. Mm -hmm. And the analogy I use when I'm hiring a general manager is, use your sorts analogy, are they someone who wants the ball? You know, there's five seconds left in the game. It's tied. Are they someone who's going to call for the ball or are they someone who wants to pass the ball? And someone who's going to be a GM or in that kind of a role has to be someone who wants the ball, right? Like they thrive under that pressure. They love that moment of like, okay, I can do this. That said, where you start the question around decision-making, you know, I think being a C-level executive requires a lot of humility around knowing your limits, knowing that you may not be the smartest person in the room and knowing how to delegate. And so one thing we try really hard at NerdWallet to do is push decision-making down through the org, right? So like, I don't have to make every single decision out there. And it's challenging because as smart people, we have strong conviction around being right. And one thing I always coach people who are new to like leadership positions is you actually don't know if you're right. A lot of things, you, there's so many shades of gray in there. And so let's say you're arguing with someone who works with you, like an approach, an approach how to do something. Let's say you even knew with 100% certainty your way was 100% optimized, but the person that worked for you, their solution was 90 or 95% optimized. What would you do? And it's interesting, some people are like, oh, I for sure, you just proved my point. I for sure would tell them you have to do it my way. And I always tell people, no, you're wrong because that five or 10% tax is worth it to me that person to have ownership over their decision, to learn from the mistake, or to learn about different ways of doing things. And so I think that's something as a leader, you really have to be aware of that you can't make every decision and you're not always gonna be right. And you actually need to be very good at delegating to the rest of your organization. When you talk about delegating down, it certainly frees up some of your bandwidth. It also frees up, I would say, or redistributes some of the accountability to that individual who's making the call. And it also redistributes some of the credit so earlier in your career, as you're acclimating to being an executive, a C-suite leader, did you find it was difficult to delegate away? And like, again, maybe you haven't reached your own cognitive load or bandwidth limits, but what are the things that you did really deliberately or intentionally to live out those precepts of delegating down? Yeah, it's just, I don't know if it's my personality type, but I never felt the need 
to claim the credit. I think a lot of people you talk to probably do this, but they, you know, you take those like psychological tests that tell you, you know, what kind of professional yeah. you are. The one, well, I took one uh -huh. maybe like four or five years ago that was really resonated with me and it characterized me as someone who liked to win. Like that was the most important thing to me, but I didn't like winning individually. I like to win as a team. But so I never felt that compulsion. That said, I think it's, for me, it's really important for the rest of my team to be successful and to be able to get that glory. And then by default, it's a good reflection of me as a leader that I was able to support those people, right? Because my job, I'm really just overhead, right? I'm trying to clear out the weeds in front of people as they're executing and doing the hard work. So yeah, so I never felt that need to like that struggle. When you talk about people on your team, even yourself, and this idea of, well, okay, am I a love to win kind of person? This question, maybe there's a third alternative, but I'll frame it as a binary. Would you say you are more a, I love to win or I hate to lose type of leader? And then does that translate into the people you hire on your team? Oh, that's so interesting. I love to win and I hate to lose. I love to win, but there has to be something of consequence that matters in the winning. It's funny when we did that, when we did that psychological test, everyone on the management team kept asking me like, oh, at lunch, like who's going to finish eating their food first or, or, you know, some, you know, whatever petty, like kind of competition. I'm like, I don't care because it doesn't matter to me. So for me, it's winning, but winning are the things that really matter. And so at NerdWallet, for example, things that matter to me are, you know, can we really help consumers and make a difference? Mm -hmm. Can we grow the company and bickering over like all the small things on the edges doesn't really matter to me. Or those are the things that matter to me in terms of winning. When I think about the number of SDRs and BDRs out there that to be just jamming on the phones, trying to get a hold of you as the chief business officer. And again, your control over the direction of NerdWallet, your obviously involvement and oversight into how what's in the purse strings, how that is all spent. As you say, either I love to win or I hate to lose. What for our sellers out there who are trying to either reach your mind share or your peers mind share, what are the things that they're saying that compel you to want to take that call? Or do you just have a hard and fast rule? I only take, I don't know, sales calls from people I know or from introductions. We'd love to just better understand in the mind of the C-suite executive, what does it take to unlock and crack into your availability? Yeah. And by the way, we, you know, we have a sales team that I manage. I also, we also have business development professionals that work with financial institutions that have to manage relationships. So I'm, I'm very familiar with that challenge. I think there are two things. One is, you know, obviously the easiest way is to make a connection. So is there a connection to me? So it's not just like a cold interruption. Yeah. Uh -huh. But the second part too is you have to be authentic about where is the relationship beneficial to both parties, right? You know, I get a lot of emails or outreaches and they're clever. But you can tell they're not very authentic. They're just very cleverly thought through. And so when I when we talk about how we reach consumers or work with financial institutions, I always tell my team, you need to be authentic and think about what is it that the other party is looking for that we can offer and that is really beneficial to them that they can't get anywhere else. So for us, for example, working the financial institutions, you know, our business models, we connect consumers to the financial institutions to get a financial product. Now, the financial institution, if you think about it from their perspective, they're making these complex financial instruments and they're not just trying to get anyone to get them. They want to find the right consumer for them. But it's really challenging because trying to explain like a new credit card in like a very short marketing blurb is really hard. 
And so what we tell the investment institution is like, we are an educator. So we generate content recommendations. So we're going to educate the consumer so that they're not going to get this product if it's not the right one for them. And that value for them makes a lot of sense. And they see it in the numbers and how the consumer engages them. And so that's how the partnership grows over time. So yeah, I think for salespeople, it's really just figuring out what is it that the other person is looking for and needs. Is there really an authentic reason why that counterparty needs that product or that offering that you have? Ladies and gents, amigos y amigas, compadres, Kevin couldn't have made it more clear just how important authenticity is for a sales team. Authenticity not only builds trust, but it attracts more customers too. People are naturally drawn toward authentic leaders. In fact, a consumer content report found the vast majority of consumers, 86% of them, said authenticity is important when deciding what brands they like and support. That number is even higher amongst millennials, with 90% of them highlighting authenticity as a key factor. Get this, the focus on authenticity is something that's only risen since the pandemic began. Of the shoppers surveyed in this post-pandemic consumer report, 88% said authenticity was important, with 50% of those deeming it very important. In today's hyper-connected world, consumers, whether it's in a B2C or a B2B space, are more discerning than ever. They can easily detect insincerity or manipulation in brand messaging. It's a no-brainer. Authenticity is that powerful driver of trust, loyalty, and meaningful connection. So, brands, if you're listening, foster that environment full of sincere, authentic, heartfelt authenticity if you want to drive your revenue. Back to you, Kevin, to hear more about this. And hard to fake authenticity. Oh, yeah. I think you can smell it from a mile away when it just reeks of an ulterior motive. Well, I want to pivot gears because I had heard you say at one point that you have this philosophy that pertains to the idea it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Tell us about that, the genesis of that philosophy, and how it finds its way into your day-to-day at NerdWallet. You know, I can't claim to own that philosophy. It's one that our founder and CEO, Tim, has. And I would characterize him as extremely ambitious, but not greedy. And so he has a very long-term view on things, which is really impressive. And so for me, you know, I joined NerdWallet. It was the first tech startup I had ever worked for. You know, it's funny. When I interviewed, I got made fun of because my email address is a Hotmail address. But it's interesting because when I, I think the image of Silicon Valley startups is move fast, break things, sprinting. And it's interesting when I got to Neural, it's actually very different. You know, Tim takes a very long-term view, and which is why we're able to build this mode of trust because building trust with consumers at scale is both not deviating from your values, but also the consistency with which you apply it over time. And you just yeah. need time to do that. And so it's a great moat because for someone to replicate that, they would need a lot of time to do that. And I think to do that, you have to have that long-term view. For me personally, the way I've adopted it is I look at it in terms of, is this something, if I were to fast forward five years from now and look back, would I regret like the good or bad outcomes of, that, of those decisions? So the example I'll give is, you know, there are many times as someone who's in tr- who has revenue pressure, I would push on things like, well, what if on this one thing we just compromised a little bit? That would mean an incremental million dollars next month. And fortunately, you know, if you look at our values, you're like, well, no, that's not what we should do. So we pass on that revenue opportunity. Yeah. Now, five years later, looking back, do I miss that million dollars of revenue in June or July? No, I don't even think about it. But if I compromised on our values and eroded the trust 
in the brand by the consumers, which would lead to really bad outcomes in terms of people coming back to us or their reviews of us. Those are the things you for sure would regret. And so that's the lens through which I look at things in terms of marathon, but not a sprint. Love the balancing act of ambition that doesn't teeter into or mutate into greed. I think that's a beautiful way to judge where you fall in that continuum. Just to push on this a little bit, you have investors, you have shareholders and a fiduciary responsibility and you have employees and there is in a capitalistic society, a reward for pushing harder, moving faster, achieving more. So what is the reconciliation that you and Tim maintain where we will grow, but we will grow responsibly and at a sustainable pace that doesn't become greed, but that also is still fast enough that it's not aggravating, frustrating, disenfranchising, emboldening the people that also have a financial expectation on your guys' head. Yeah. So I don't think there's a trade-off between having a long view and not moving fast. Okay. I think it's, I think it's hard. I think in the early days of NerdWallet, it was difficult because you took a long view. It felt like the goal line was so far out. You didn't feel the urgency today. I think we corrected it a lot because you can break that down into like, well, what signal do you need to see this month that lets you know you're on the right path to generate the five-year outcome they're on? But I do believe that you have the short-term pressures, but I think overall people care about the durability of your business. Does the business model work? Do the unit economics make sense? You know, there are a lot of businesses out there that we look at now that they're fabulous products, but the, the, the economics don't work because for every widget you sell, you lose 20 cents, right? So there's that. There's also how durable is your business model? If what we're doing is really easy and someone else could do it, that's not great. I could make a lot of money in a quarter from now. And so I think people are forgiving because they understand that they want a durable company that sustains over time. Great. If you could go back to the first year that you assumed the role of C-suite executive chief business officer and tell yourself what you know now, what words of advice would you give early in career, Kevin? Both. I think for me, it would be back to the authentic point, which is not to compromise in the things that I believed were right at the time to push on it. Again, I think there were a lot of situations where for the sake of keeping the peace or avoiding conflict on the team, you avoid bringing up the hard question or a contrarian point of view. In almost every instance, many of the instances I can think of, those led to pretty bad outcomes, whether it was misalignment, working the wrong thing, whatever those things are, you know, I wish I go back and if I just said that thing, or if I just made sure I stood my ground on that point. How do you look for that competency and quality in the people that you hire on your team? Because I suspect if that's the advice you'd give yourself five, 10 years ago, you would want the same to be true for the people that report into you, your trust advisors, your lieutenants. What is it in an interview when it can be a little unnerving on the other side of the table to say, I'm going to be a truth teller. And even when it takes the courage and the audacity to tell Kevin he's wrong, I'm going to do that every time because he needs to hear it. What are the ways in which you source for that kind of colleague? Yeah. So we use, I don't know if it's because I'm an ex-consultant, but in my interviews with people, I use a case interview format. I mean, I don't ask people how many balloons fit into a room, but I do ask them things like, hey, here's the business situation I'm dealing with today. And tell me how you would approach it. In the course of discussion, I'll let them know my point of view, like, here's what I think of the situation. What do you think of that? 
It's interesting because in an interview scenario, I think people are very eager to please. Yeah. And so a lot of people just tell you like, oh, that's fantastic. I agree. And here are all the reasons I agree. And then sometimes when they do that, I will push them on that. Like, well, what about, what if I said I were to do this? What would you think of it? It's interesting because people who stand their ground will say, well, actually, I view it a different way. People are just yes men or just say, oh yeah, I agree with that point too. And they'll just, they'll fall like faulty logic in a case interview off a cliff. And so I do try to press on like, where are they going to, where can I give them something that's actually faulty logic and they'll actually push back on me. Very cool. Awesome. Well, Kevin, as we unpack your own philosophies about this being a marathon that can still be a fast marathon, but it's just not a reckless or unsustainable sprint to everything about the authenticity you look for in yourself, in the people that are approaching you, to the team that you've assembled of truth tellers. You've just so generously imparted invaluable insight on me personally, but then also our 33,000 listeners that tune in every month to reveal. So I can't thank you enough. If you have listened to an episode before, then you certainly know what is the last question that is coming, which is how we use the closure of every episode. And it's asking you this question, which is, if you could describe sales in just one word, Kevin, what would it be? Connection. Why is that? Because, you know, like what I was saying earlier about sales, you have to find that way to connect with someone to exchange the thought of like the value of what you're trying to provide them, whether it's a widget, a service, whatever it is. And without that, it's hard to communicate that value and find a common ground. Again, continues harking back to that idea of authenticity. Who wants to connect with an inauthentic person? So a really nice way to cap off today's episode. Kevin, thank you so much. Listeners, this is Kevin Yuan, the Chief Business Officer of NerdWallet, as well as the General Manager of NerdWallet. Next, Kevin, it's been an absolute delight. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, well, come on, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.